Do you want to unleash your inner power and heal your past wounds? Do you want to learn the secrets of Celtic wisdom and magic? Do you want to transform your life and align with your true purpose? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you need to listen to Practically Magic, the podcast that shows you how to use ancient healing in a modern way. Join me, Courtney Earle, a self-proclaimed witch, healer, and Celtic priestess, and let me guide you through the dark cauldron of your subconscious and help you emerge with a new vision of yourself. Practically Magic is more than just a podcast. It is a journey of self-discovery and empowerment. Tune in every week and get ready to experience massive healing, balance, and peace for your soul and body. Listen on Ride the Wave Media. Hey, it's just Blaine and Bex here with the best podcast in Utah. That's right. It's Radio Daybreak, a show highlighting the people, businesses, and events that make Daybreak, Salt Lake City, and Utah one of the most majestic places around. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode of the best podcast in Utah, Radio Daybreak. The following presentation is a production of Ride the Wave Media. Hey, heathens. Welcome back to Vibing the Apocalypse. I'm your host, the Fresh King Benjamin, the accidental prophet of Mormonism. It is day 1407 of the apocalypse. I hope you are well. I hope you're surviving. I hope you're hunkered down nice and warm on this cold, what for me is a rainy January day, which is odd because usually doesn't rain in January in Utah. That's the apocalypse for you. We're going to get into our episode pretty quick. But I just want to, at the top, let you know that I have a couple of comedy shows on the calendar coming up. So if you want to come and check me out, see some of my stand-up, it's hilarious. Very well-reviewed. People have said such amazing things as, why do you do Mormon polygamy comedy? You should stop. That'll give people the wrong idea. I've been told, what the fuck do you think you are doing? I've been told, stop. Just stop. So if you want to see what all the fuss is about, I'm going to be headlining the Salt Lake City downtown wise guys, the Rickles Room, next Friday, January 26th at 7.30 p.m. And then I'll be doing it again in February on Sunday, February 25th at 7 p.m. And you can check out both of those. You can get tickets for both of those on the Wise Guys website, wiseguyscomedy.com. You can also see clips of my comedy on my socials at the Fresh King Benjamin on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube, and you can check out my website, thefreshkingbenjamin.com, for a full hour special where I do a whole hour of comedy about growing up in Mormon polygamy and then and then leaving and then escaping to this wicked world. So be sure to check those out if you're local. And if you're not local, if you want to fly into Salt Lake, I don't know why you would do that. I mean, it is Sundance weekend, so maybe you're already here, but come and check me out. We're going to have a really good time at those shows. Again, that's... Next Friday, January 26th, and then the last Sunday in February 25th. I'll be headlining both of those days. So today's episode is about the apocalypse. And I want to use today's episode to let you in on my thinking about what the apocalypse is, why it matters, and how we can use the the different ways that humans have thought about apocalypses over the last several thousand years that we've been a species to help us survive this current apocalypse. So I wanna start by by talking a little bit about what it was like growing up in Mormon polygamy and what our view of the apocalypse was. When I was a kid, what did the apocalypse sound like? What did it look like? Because I was raised in a really apocalyptic culture, right? We were expecting the end of the world. So I'm gonna talk about that. And then I wanna talk about, as I've exited that worldview and, and adopted a much more secular, a much more scientific worldview, how I think about the apocalypse now and the structure of an apocalypse, the way that it impacts the world, and then the different myths throughout human history that have contributed to our understanding of the apocalypse. And then I want to wrap by talking about the current apocalypse that we're in, maybe when did it start, and what the shape of it is going to look like, and and then we'll wrap our episode. So let's start with as a child. So my earliest memories of apocalyptic thinking came from stories 
that my parents and my aunts and uncles would tell us about the end of the world. Like I talked about last week, I grew up on a Mormon polygamous compound. We were on a tiny little ranch in, a, in, the, in what we called the mountains of Ephraim in, uh, in Wyoming. Those are not what those mountains are called. They're actually called the Bighorn Mountains. But we were biblical, so we wanted to give them a more biblical name. And Mormonism is an apocalyptic religion, right? When Joseph Smith started Mormonism back in the 1830s, he talked all the time about the imminent second coming of Jesus Christ. It was the heyday, right? There were a lot of cults that were started, Seventh-day Adventist, a bunch of different versions of apocalyptic thinking, and all of them were pointing to the imminent second coming of Jesus Christ. And if you have any familiarity with Christianity, you know that we've been waiting for Jesus to come back for about 2,000 years. So it would seem that maybe he's delayed or maybe he's not coming. But this apocalyptic thinking, I think, actually goes back even earlier than that. If you look at earlier myths before the Christian myth, especially in the Norse mythology, Ragnarok, right? This idea of uh, the war of the gods at the end of time that then rebirths the... The, the cycle of civilization. And I actually think that's perhaps a more accurate view of what an apocalypse is. We'll get into that a little bit later in this episode. But as a child, there was a very clear structure that we were expecting. The apocalypse was going to follow this pattern. Leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, there would be an increase of catastrophe. We would call it, we called them calamities. The calamities of the last days would just steadily increase. There would be a crescendo of calamities. There would be earthquakes. There would be tornadoes. There would be hurricanes. There would be floods. There would be famine. There would be fires. There would be pestilence. There would be wars and rumors of wars. And that all of this would build into a massive crescendo called Armageddon, which would be the final battle, usually centered in Israel, where the forces of good and evil would be arrayed against each other. And then right at the last moment, right when the forces of good were about to be totally destroyed, Jesus would pop into existence. He would ride down from heaven on a horse. He would slay all of the wicked people with the sword of his truth. There would be blood everywhere and all of the righteous people would be saved. And then we would enter something called the millennium. The millennium was pictured as a thousand years when Jesus would rule on the earth and everyone would be good. Everyone would follow Jesus. Everyone would be part of the one true religion, which was the Mormon religion. And we took this very seriously. We believed that as the calamities happened, as the world got more and more chaotic, that it would be incredibly important to have places of refuge, peaceful areas in the storm of the last days for the righteous people to be gathered to. In fact, we believed that we were going to be, our little ranch in Wyoming was going to be one of those places of refuge, one of those gathering places. That's why we had the ranch. We uh, acquired as much land as we possibly could. That's why we actually had the bakery on the ranch that I ended up uh, labor trafficked in was because the ranch couldn't really pay for itself, but we had to have that land. We had to have that property so that when all of the bad shit was happening in the world and the cities were just places of chaos and despair, we would talk about how the cities of Salt Lake City, that was the one city that we were aware of, would run with blood. There were, pro there were prophecies from Brigham Young that not even a yellow dog would be around to wag its tail. I don't know why the dog has to be yellow in the story, but that's what Brigham Young said. And Brigham Young was a prophet, so who am I <laughs> to bandy words with the great Brigham Young? But he and many of the Mormon prophets are talking about this impending doom, this impending calamity, and that the big focal point of this chaos would be around cities. And so it was really important for us to have land outside of the city, off in the desert, where there would be relative peace, right? And if we could make a self-sustaining society there, then we wouldn't have to rely on the food on the fuel, on the energy, on anything from the world, because that would all go to shit anyways, right? The trucks would stop coming. We wouldn't be able to grow. The, the, the food that we would import from other countries would stop. The electrical grid would go down. All of these catastrophes would happen. And if we weren't self-sufficient, if we relied on the world for things, then we were fucked. We were going to be royally fucked. And so we worked really hard to create a a little kind of mini utopia. The goal was to make something that not only could support ourselves and our families, but could also support 
any of the righteous saints from Utah or from the surrounding areas that would flee from Salt Lake City or flee from Boise, Idaho, <laughs> and come to come to our little community. We also believe that the, the latter days, the last days, these calamitous times were going to be a moment of gathering, that there was going to be a gathering, what we called the gathering of Israel, because we thought that we were Jews. Uh, we weren't, but that's the, what we thought. And we thought that, the, that there were righteous people scattered all throughout the earth, and that during the latter days, during all of these calamities, we would be sent out as missionaries, right? As, as people to go out and gather the righteous and bring them to these places of safety that we'd carefully crafted for, for many years. And that was the world that I grew up in. So as I'm a young child and I'm on this ranch and we're isolated from society, the view that I have is I look out on, on society and I think, this isn't going to last very long, right? It's only a matter of time before all of this wealth, all of this abundance, I would go into town and I would see just all the abundance, all the massive wealth that is the American culture. And I would think it's only a matter of time before this all comes crumbling down. And it's only a matter of time before this is in chaos. And so we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared for that. And it was very common in our little community for people to have dreams about the last days, about the calamities. And we took those dreams very seriously. Some of those dreams that I remember from uncles and aunts and cousins, one of them was that one, one uncle had a dream where in the last days he was down, he was, had come down to visit Utah. And there, all of a sudden he'd woken up and there was a massive earthquake. And he ran outside and he saw the mountains of the, that make up the Wasatch Front crumbling down, like melting down like a candle. And we took that very seriously. We thought, yeah, there's going to be an earthquake in Utah. There will be a massive earthquake in Utah and the mountains will come crumbling down around us. That's something we have to be prepared for. We, another uncle had a dream about the government coming to our ranch in, in these last days and essentially setting up like a compound, like establishing like a, a concentration camp because they'd seen what we were doing and preparing to gather the righteous and they wanted to come and take us out and make it so that we couldn't do that. And so we took these very seriously. We believed that there were going to be all of these horrible, uh, horrific, um, natural disasters that were going to happen. And we believed that the, the government was going to become increasingly corrupt, that it was probably going to come after us specifically because we were the righteous ones. And so we had to be separate. We had to be very careful, very cautious of our interactions with the government. And that it was going to be our role. It was going to be our sort of sacred duty in these calamitous times to create places of safety and then welcome the righteous people to that. And so there are a couple of things about this, about this worldview that I, I think are really interesting and I think are broader than just the Mormon polygamist world, right? Because as I've looked into the evangelical world, the kind of the alt-right Christian world, there are a lot of different places, there are a lot of different worldviews that take this idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that take the apocalypse very seriously, right? If you're familiar with the Left Behind series by Jim Jenkins and Tim LaHaye, massive, huge bestseller in the late 90s, about a dozen books all about the last days, what they call the tribulation. And they look to the book of Revelations in the, in the Bible, and they predict a seven-year period of just intense calamity preceded by the rapture, where all of the righteous people get sucked up to heaven. And then there's the seven-year period, the last shot, where everyone, where you get to repent. If, if, you're, if you find Jesus, that's your last chance. Because at the very end of that, Jesus is coming back and everything is going to be destroyed. And a big part of that narrative too is this idea of the beast, right? The beast in Revelation is this sort of antichrist, this large and powerful creature that's interpreted as probably a political figure who is essentially a persecutor and a hater of the righteous of the Christians. And he institutes something called the mark of the beast, which is some kind of number that is placed on your hand or on your forehead and without which you cannot buy or sell. My family took this very seriously. We believe that was had something to do with the with your social security number. That's why me and, and most of my siblings, we were not given social security numbers as, as children because there was a belief that was part of this mark of the beast, right? That it was getting tied into this wicked system that we didn't want to be a part of. So that's a really big part of American, the, just the American mindset, right? There are a lot of people in America who think about the apocalypse and think about it in this way. And there are a couple of different 
parts of that worldview that I think are really important to understand. Number one is that all of these apocalyptic myths, they divide humanity into two camps. There's the righteous and there's the wicked. And the idea is that in this apocalypse, it's going to be very important which side you're on. If you are on the righteous side, ultimately, it will be very hard. You will be persecuted. You may die. But if you die, Jesus will suck you up into heaven. You'll be saved. And if you make it, then Jesus will protect you. God will protect you and he will ultimately save you at the very end. This apocalyptic world is baked into it is this idea of a savior, right? A Messiah, an, an extra worldly source that is coming with abundant power to save and also to punish because there's another group uh, of people in the world and that's the wicked people. And those people are uh, generally considered the sensual, the the material, those focused on pleasure or this life or the, the abundance of the world or sex or drugs or rock and roll or anything like that. Anything that is not pure, anything that is not Christian is this wicked, this wicked part of the world. And the world is divided into those two, two different groups. And there's this idea that during these last days, during the calamities, the wicked are going to oppress the righteous. They're going to oppress and persecute and attempt to destroy the righteous people. So there's a very strong persecution complex built in for people who have adopted this myth. But ultimately, the wicked are going to be unsuccessful because Jesus will come back and when Jesus returns, he will punish the wicked. He will hardcore punish the wicked and not in like a kinky way, not in a way that the wicked people are going to like because let's be honest, most of those wicked people are a little bit kinky and they might actually enjoy Jesus coming back and being like, bad boys, naughty, naughty humans. They might get into that. That's not the kind of punishment we're talking about. No, we're talking about death and destruction, eternal damnation, cast down into the pit of fire and brimstone, never to emerge. And that I think is a really, is a really interesting and possibly dangerous, not even possibly, definitely dangerous piece of the myth is this idea of the division of people into a righteous camp and into a wicked camp. Because ultimately, apocalypses are catastrophic events, right? I think that the, the apocalyptic myth is more cyclical than it is linear, meaning that we are not building towards one total apocalypse where Jesus comes back. Rather, apocalypses are cycles, that human civilization goes in these sort of cycles of growth expansion, overexpansion, and then collapse, and then growth, and then expansion, and then overexpansion, and then collapse. And if you follow that, in fact, one of the one of the most fascinating looks into this idea of the cycles of history is the work of uh, Neil Strauss and, or sorry, Neil Howe and William Strauss, two historians that were working in the late 80s in the United States, and they published a book called uh, The Fourth Turning. And they found, as they looked back through Anglo-American history, hundreds of years, they found what they called a saclium, which is a cycle of history lasting about 85 to 100 years, where this history sort of moves in these cycles. I'm reminded of, in this, of the, the myth of Ragnarok uh, from Norse mythology. If you've read Norse mythology, you know that everything in that myth, everything in that worldview is building towards this final battle of the gods, where the gods and the frost giants will fight. There will be total destruction. All of the gods will be killed. The world tree will be burned. And then everything will start again. And that's where all of sight, all of civilization is heading. And I think this is a really fascinating way to look at history, because if you look at the way that humans interact with our environments, often we'll get into a new environment. We'll suck up all the resources. We'll expand dramatically because of that will overexpand beyond what the carrying capacity of our environment is, and then our society will start to collapse. And I think that's what's happening in the apocalypse that we're facing right now, is that we've, especially if you look at the fringes, right? I'm, I live, grew up and currently live on the fringes of American society, right? I grew up in a small, tiny town in Wyoming. Then I escaped to the vast and wicked metropolis of Salt Lake City, Utah, right? Which is the furthest reach, like that's the furthest extension of this white American culture on this continent. And what I see when I walk around and look at 
this area is everything's falling apart and it's falling apart slowly. One of my favorite sort of evidences of the apocalypse is that now when I'm like driving through towns and it's night and I'll see signs and I'll see like big dicks sporting goods, except it's big X sporting goods because the D light has burned out and nobody's replacing it, right? I see buildings that are decrepit and falling to pieces, especially in small towns. If you, as you drive through small towns in Wyoming, that it's just wilting. It's like the civilization flourished out as far as it could and now it's retracting. If there was this big expansion and now there's a retraction. And that's exactly what Strauss and Howe predicted in this fourth turning. In fact, they organized this saculum, this hundred year cycle in periods of four, what they called turnings. And they said that these turnings were driven by generations and that they actually followed the seasons of the year very closely where there was a spring season where the civilization would grow into new growth. Then there was a summer where it would flourish. Then there was an autumn where it would start to unravel. And then there was a winter where it would collapse. And then in the spring, it would be reborn again. And they actually chart a lot of these cycles through history. So that first turning is the spring. They call that the high, where everything grows, everything comes up. The second turning is the awakening, where it ex broadly expands. And then the third turning is the unraveling, where it starts to retract. And then the fourth turning is the crisis. And they, if you chart that through American history, it's actually pretty easy to see because you can spot the crises. So in, in American history, the first really big crisis on, for Anglo uh, society in America was the American Revolution, which happened 1773, 1794. And then about a hundred years later, there was another big crisis with the Civil War, 1860 to 1865. And then about a hundred years later, there was another major crisis in the Great Depression and World War II, 1929 to 1946. And now, according to Strauss and Howe, we're in the middle of another crisis generation. They predicted it started in 2008 with the global financial crisis and that it'll, it will last until about 2033. So we've got another about 10 or 15 years in this crisis period. And the thing that I think is the most interesting about these cycles is if you could get away from this kind of Christian apocalyptic linear focus of the apocalypse, and you can look at the apocalypse as a cycle in history, what is that apocalypses are actually big opportunities. They're big opportunities for society to change for the better. In the American Revolution, we go from a society governed by a king to a society ostensibly governed by the people although there was a lot of work to get to to actually get it governed by all of the people, but it was a step in that direction. And then the Civil War, again, there was this changes that seemed impossible just five or 10 years before the Civil War, where it seemed like slavery would never end. Suddenly, in the midst of the Civil War, the end of slavery is not only possible, but it happens. And we see the same thing with World War II and the Great Depression, where the, the way that society was structured before that and the way that society is structured after that are radically different. Because in these crisis eras, there's a lot of opportunity. People begin to, the, the threads that hold the world together are a little bit thinner. And I think it's important to understand why that is. And in order to do that, I think we have to understand how humans conceptualize and think about our worlds. Because it's not just about it's not just that we live in a real world, right? As humans, we live in a sort of amalgamation of the physical world and also our fictional imaginal world. And let me explain what I mean by that. If you just think about you, like an individual human, and the way that you interact with the world around you, you're interacting with the physical world, but you're also interacting with the, the sort of the temporal world, the time world, when you are born matters, right? If you are born in 1830s America, you're operating in a different world that all together we've constructed than if you're born, say, in 2008 in America. And I think the way that the reason this happens, the way that I like to think about this is that I like to imagine that each person, every one of us, we're operating in our own simulation. 
And I don't mean like that in terms of like, the, like I believe in physical reality, right? Like this question of, is the universe real or is it a simulation? I think there's a physical universe, right? If I pound on this desk, if I pound on my chest, I can feel physical reality. But if I think about the way that my brain interacts with the world around me, what I realize is that I'm not actually living. My brain isn't perceiving reality. My brain is predicting and projecting reality. One example of this, I read a book, fascinating book called Behave by a neuroscientist where he, he basically looked at the way that the brain operates. And one of the things that he talked about in that book that I found absolutely fascinating is the idea that our brain doesn't react to things, it predicts things. And let me explain what, that, what I mean by that. Just as an example, at any given moment, at any given moment, our brain is processing upwards of 40,000 distinct so like sensory inputs from our nose, from our eyes, from our ears, from our body, from our sensation. There's tons of data coming into our brain at every moment. And there's also some notable gaps. As an example, right in the middle of our eye, the way that our eye is constructed, there's a hole. And that means that right about here, like a foot in front of our vision on the right and a foot in front of our vision on the left, there should be a giant circle where there's nothing because the, our eyes are not actually pulling in light from that area because that's where the hole of our eye is. And so there's no cells to catch the light, to reflect. And so what our brain actually does is it take an image around from what is, what's around it and then it guesses and it fills in that hole for us. It also does that because everything that we see is actually upside down. So it actually not only does it fill in this hole, it also flips it. So as you start to realize the way that happens, the other thing too is that all of, this, all of the sensory inputs that are coming into our body, it takes time for that to get to our brain. It takes about 0.2 seconds for sensory input to get up to our brain, which is remarkably fast. But what that means is that our brain actually can't function in the physical world if it was only responding to social input or to sensory input. It has to be responding to what it thinks is going to happen. And when it, usually when that happens, it, everything's fine, right? Because our brain is actually functioning like this. Our brain makes a prediction about what it thinks will happen. And then it creates a simulation for us to operate that's simulating what it predicts will be going on in the natural world. And then it tests that prediction against actual experience. And either the simulation works and we keep functioning, or there's a correction. And this is called a simulation correction in the neuroscience literature. And we've all experienced this, right? If you've ever been walking down a flight of stairs and you think that you're done, right? You think that there's no more stairs and then there's one more stair and your whole body's just like, right? That is a prediction error that has been corrected. And so you know physically what it feels like in our bodies when our simulation, when our predictions are off and we have to correct, right? So that's what's going on physically. In addition to this physical simulation that we're running, we're also running a individual sort of mythic simulation. And that has to do with the world that we believe that we inhabit, the country that we believe that we live in, what that country stands for, right? If you think about the huge division in our country today between the left and the right, you can understand that both of them are living in alternative simulations of what America is and should be. We're really living in separate nations. That was the experience that I had growing up in Mormon polygamy, is that the world that I lived in, the simulated reality that I existed in as a mythic structure was very different from the, the, the simulation that the rest of you were running, right? I was operating in a world, I was existing in a simulation that was only 6,000 years old. Because 6,000 years ago, God had created the earth. And so because that was a simulation running in my brain, a mythic simulation, I was able to cooperate and interact with a bunch of other people who also were running the same simulation. So I imagine it, right? If you visualize it, you can imagine that every individual being is projecting this simulation about the physical world and the mythic world, the kind of the fictional social world that we live in. And we're all radiating this out. And then if our mythic world lines up with the mythic world of someone else, then that kind of creates a joint mythic world. So when I talk about the Mormon world or the Mormon myth, 
That's what I'm talking about is that currently there are about 14 to 16 million humans who operate in some degree or another within the Mormon myth, meaning that they have accepted mythic truths about how the world is from Mormonism. Like there are prophets that speak to God. Like that the Book of Mormon is a, is a literal translation of gold plates that tell the history of ancient America, right? And so that's a mythic world that people exist in. There's another mythic world in America called Christianity, where we're operating in this shared mythic understanding that Jesus was a real person, he was the son of God, he died, and then he was resurrected, and he's coming back. That's a mythic framework, right? That is a mythic simulation that creates a different way for humans to interact and to, and to cooperate. Then you also have people who are operating under a different myth- mythic framework, that there is no God, that we are all just chance random atoms that collected here, and that we're ultimately, the end of the universe doesn't really matter, that nothing really matters, right? There's dozens and hundreds of these different mythic kind of worlds floating around in our society. And one of the big ones that we have is this myth of America, right? America as a country, America as a nation, and what it means and currently as a civilization, as an American civilization, we're in a massive conflict about what that civilization means. And I would submit that not only are we in a conflict about what that simulation means, about what that mythic framework of America means, but that mythic framework has, is also in an apocalyptic state. Because what an apocalypse is anytime our collective view of the world breaks. So an apocalypse is a breakage of the world. One example of that for me, I think that we can have mini apocalypses, like we can have personal apocalypses, we can have community apocalypses, and we can have societal apocalypses, and we can have global apocalypses. And I think one of the things that's particularly challenging about our time right now in 2024 in the whole world is that all of these apocalypses have compounded where we have a bunch of people who are having personal apocalypses. An example of this might be a divorce, a death, a, an accident, right? I can remember the first real time when my world broke. I was a young child. I was probably four or five years old and it was a car accident. My dad fell asleep while he was driving. We plowed into a into a fence post, and then we had to sit in the winter with a, with a, in a wrecked car for a number of hours before someone was able to come and pick us up. And what that experience did to me as a small child is it showed me that the world wasn't as solid as I thought it was, right? The world broke. I went from this sort of safe cocoon world, and then the world broke around me, and my mind had to adjust to that. That's an apocalypse, right? Anytime our view of the world, that mental simulation that we're running either individually or collectively as a society, anytime that thing breaks, there's a process that happens after that, right? There's a breakage, there's the settling after the breakage, and then there's the calm that comes after where everything is broken, you're looking around, you're like, okay, this is what the world is now, right? There's a new understanding of what the truth of the world is, and then there's an opportunity to rebuild. So any apocalypse, I think, really comes in these four distinct stages. The first stage is where the world breaks, and it breaks irreparably. And what happens is, it's not that the world breaks, right? Because the world is always going to be the world. It's that our framework for understanding the way that the world works and what things are possible shatters. Think about what happened in March of 2020. Right Before March of 2020, no one really had a conceptual idea that it was possible that there could be a global disease that would kill millions of people and would force us all into our homes for months on end. In fact, if you remember when COVID first went down, right, everyone was like, oh, this will be a week. Oh, and then it'll be two weeks. And now it's a month. And now it's six months, right? Where we just couldn't quite grasp the fact that our world had broken, that the framework that we had for understanding the world wasn't sufficient for for this new reality. So the first phase of an apocalypse is that moment where we recognize that the world is broken now. That came for all of us, for a global consciousness in 2020. The world shattered. Then there's the fallout from that breakage, 
right? If you go back to the car, like to the car accident analogy, if you've been in a car accident, you know that there's this moment where you lose control, right? That is the brake. The car is out of control. And then there's this moment where it's tumbling through the air and then it slams into the ground and it rolls and people get thrown around and everything breaks. There's that fallout, right? That's where we are as a global society. We're in the fallout phase of the apocalypse. Everything is shattering around us. That's why the world feels so chaotic, right? That's why if you remember when, when 2020 went down and everyone went home, then all of the shit happened, right? Everything, fucking fires in Australia, fucking aliens, like everything was shattering around us and it still is, right? That's the fallout. We're still in that fallout where we don't exactly know because the world, we're still trying to get our bearings, right? We're trying to figure out what is real now? Like, cause that conception that we had of the world didn't work. And now we're scrambling to understand. So phase one is this breakage. Phase two is the fallout. And then phase three is when it comes to a, it comes to a stillness, right? Where the car slides and then stops and then everything is still. I don't think we've reached that point yet as a society. I think we're still in the fallout phase, but at some point, there will be a moment, I think, or a number of moments in our future where the world slows down and it's that moment when you're like, okay, the worst is behind us. Now we've hit rock bottom. Now everything that is going to break has broken. And that's phase three. And then that brings us to phase four of the apocalypse, which to me is the most exciting because phase four is the moment when you crawl out of the car, you look around at what happened and you start to rebuild. You start to pick up the pieces. You check on everyone and you make sure that they're okay. You start to get help to the wounded and you start to rebuild your conception of what the world is. And I think that's where we're gonna be in probably the next 10 or 15 years. And there's a lot of opportunity there because if you think about our global world, if you think about our American world, there were parts of the, that world that needed to break, right? There are parts of the world previous to 2020, like pre-2020, that were grievously inequitable. I know that because I was a victim of that, right? I was a labor-trafficked child. And there are thousands, if not millions, of children in the world just like me. They make our phones, you guys. They make our clothes. They make so much that we in the West use and value is being made on the backs of children. That's horrible. That's, it. That's grievous. And that needs to die, right? There are, in America especially, there's our treatment of the indigenous peoples, right? And our just collective amnesia, our, collect, our collective unwillingness to own up to what we did. I just watched the movie Killers of the Flower Moon with Martin Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio as the protagonist or the antagonist. And... I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but it is a chilling story about the way that we treated the native peoples of this land. And the thing that was the most awful to me about watching that movie was this, because there's, there, there's a group of people in the movie who are white, who are going around murdering the natives, basically to get their oil money. And it's treated as horrific. And then some people, like some, the federal government comes in, they send FBI agents in to like come and like try to stop it and figure out who's doing it. And the whole time that this is happening, there's these people that are nominally coming to help the natives. And I'm just thinking, and so they're casting the group of people who are doing the murders as the villains. And I'm looking at this story and I'm thinking, the villains are all of the white people. All of us are guilty. We all came to a continent that wasn't ours and we just took it. And then we killed the people who were there and then we herded them into reservations and we've refused to make it right. We've refused to acknowledge that that's what we've done. And we've just made ourselves, made our country fat and rich off of this stolen land. And we did the same thing with African slaves where we went and we took an entire race of people. We stole them from their country and we brought them here and we made ourselves fat and rich off of the labor of those stolen people. So there are, there are so many things like that in our culture that were wrong, that were grievously wrong. 
that we've just refused to acknowledge, right? I, I had a, I have a couple of uncles who have a podcast and we were having a conversation. I'm left, they're right. We were having a conversation and, and one of them said something like, I can't believe what, like, he was like, I can't believe what you're saying. Like, it sounds like you're in favor of reparations. And I'm like, obviously, like, there's no question to me about whether or not reparations should happen. We stole land and stole people and then made America rich from that stolen labor and that stolen land and those stolen resources. Of course we owe reparations. And the great news is we actually know where that money went, right? Because it's in the wealth of America. It's in the corporations. It's in the, it's in the abundant money that's just running through our system at the top. That's where all that money is. And of course, the right thing to do is to return it to the descendants of the people from whom it was exploited. And I think that is really the opportunity that we have as a collective and really the, the conversation that I wanna start having as on this podcast is how do we survive the fallout, right? How do we survive that phase of the apocalypse where everything is falling to pieces? And then how do we rebuild the world in a more just and equitable way? How do we use this opportunity, this calamitous time to rebuild the world in a way that takes care of more people? Because I think that we're in a very beautiful opportunity here because everything is up for grabs, right? But pre-COVID, everyone kind of knew that American education sucked, but nobody really wanted to talk about it. And then every American parent got a firsthand look at the state of American education. And now people are more willing to innovate and do something different in American education than ever before. And I think that's true across all different parts of American society, in the economy, in academia, in entertainment, in media, in all different parts of America, we are really leaning into this idea that we need to change and need to do something better. And I want to start having those conversations because I worry that the, well, maybe not a worry, but I, I just believe very strongly that the myth that we tell about this apocalypse is important. And I don't want to tell the myth that the world is divided between wicked people and righteous people. Because anytime there's a myth that revolves around wicked and righteous, generally that ends with the righteous people punishing or killing the wicked people. And my experience, having grown up as one of the righteous and having stepped out into the wicked world, is that there really isn't wicked and righteous. There's just people. There are just humans doing human things. And sometimes human things are beautiful and sometimes human things are scared and sometimes human things are ugly, and sometimes human things are transcendent. But we are all humans. So I don't think that we want to have, I don't want to perpetuate or buy into this narrative of the apocalypse that says the world is wicked, and the world is righteous, and we need to promote the righteous people and condemn and punish the wicked people. That is essentially the narrative that we see on both sides of the political aisle in the, in the world today, and that's going to be driving the 2024 election, right? The Republicans are like, we're the righteous ones. We have the righteous, true version of America. And the Democrats have the wicked, ugly version of America. And then the Democrats are saying, we have the righteous, inclusive, beautiful version of America. And those Republicans have the wicked, evil, satanic version of, they probably wouldn't say satanic, but you get my point, right? We're, we're dividing us into two different groups of people. And really the truth is, we're one group of people. And we need all of us on this continent because the shit that we're about to face is catastrophic. Because I don't think that we've fully, again, we're still in the fallout phase. We still have probably 10 or 15 years of catastrophe, of calamity, of pestilence and earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and sea levels rising and wars and rumors of wars. All of the things that I was told as a child, we're going to be happening in terms of the calamities of the last days are happening. And we have to face those as a community, as a global community, or we're gonna tear ourselves to pieces fighting. And the real opportunity, the, the real thing that makes me hopeful and that I think that we really need to lean into as a collective society is the understanding that we are a global tribe and that we have both the resources, the wealth, the intelligence, and the capacity to protect 
everyone. Because we actually know what's coming, right? With the climate apocalypse, our scientists have been telling us what's going to happen for dozens of years, and they've been right. And they can continue to predict it for us. We know, for example, we know that sea levels are going to rise anywhere from 10 feet to possibly 50 feet over the next 100 years. We know that is going to happen. And we also know that an overwhelming majority of humans live in a, like right on the coastline, right next to the ocean. And so knowing both of those things as a collective community, as a global community, we could start to make choices that would protect everyone. We could predict, we could use our amazing powers of prediction to make models. AI is just asking for this, just begging for this, to create models of how this apocalypse, how this climate apocalypse is going to impact different cities, different regions. And then we could start to make changes to protect the people who are vulnerable. We could make decisions as a collective to redistribute the wealth of our societies in a way that takes care of those who are the most vulnerable and still gives the people at the top a pretty sweet gig, right? One of my favorite ways examples of this is Jeff Bezos. He has a $500 million yacht, which I think is rad, by the way. I, I imagine that thing is the shit. I imagine that it's pretty incredible. But... I'll also bet that a $250 million yacht is pretty great. I haven't been on either of them. I've never even been on a yacht. But I would imagine that a $250 million yacht is pretty fucking baller. And so we need to, as a community, and that doesn't mean, I don't know that means that the government needs to go and take Jeff Bezos's yacht. I think that what we need to do is as a collective community, we need to adjust the myths and the way that we reward and valorize and honor people in such a way that we incentivize the people who are the chiefs, the people who have the money, the people who are the wealthy to take care of more people. And then that we build structures around within our governments, within our societies that make sure that they're paying their fair share, that it's being distributed equitably because we are a global community and we have to take care of everyone. We need all of us. We need everybody. And there's a way that we can take care of everybody in this apocalypse, especially if we start to think about it a little bit differently. Rather than going in this linear sort of Christian direction that says the apocalypse is a judgment from God and it's done to punish the wicked. Rather than that, to understand that apocalypses are simply the result of the way that humans interact with our environment. And that the way that humans interact with our environment is that we generally take too much. We go into new places, we exploit them, we take as much as we can, we don't think about the long term, and then we create these collapses because we've overextended ourselves. And so we need to move into a new way of thinking. We need to think in terms of resilience, in terms of creating societies that are work with the land. America's a great place to do this, by the way, because that was the entire way that the native populations existed in this American continent before Europeans came over, right? There were vast, like, forests full of food that were human cultivated. We worked with the land to create abundance that would take care of everyone. And I think we can do that again. We don't have to leave our technology. We can keep our brilliant, clever technology and we can change our thinking rather than exploiting Gaia, rather than stealing from Gaia, we can work with Gaia to create abundance for everyone. And that's really the, that's really the message that I have is the apocalypse prophet, is that apocalypses are natural cycles of history. They're the result of us as humans overextending and taking too much and being greedy. And that the solution is for us as a species to change our values and to adjust and think about our environment and our responsibility to our environment and to the other people around us more carefully and more compassionately in a way that takes care of everyone. And that's really the way for us to survive and not only survive, but thrive, maybe vibe in this current apocalypse because we've got a big opportunity here. We have a choice to make. And the choice that I want to make is I want to live in a world where we acknowledge the harsh realities of our situation. We acknowledge that we are in 
Like the car, we are in we are in catastrophe, right? We are in the middle of a car accident. The car is in the air. It is spiraling out of control. And it's going to come to us. It's going to settle pretty soon. It's going to stop pretty soon. And as we're doing that, as a society, as we're spiraling out of control, we need to start having serious conversations about what the world is like, what we need to do differently, how we need to think differently, how we need to feel differently, the different frameworks, the different myths that we need to tell, the different systems of business and education and media that we need to adopt in order to survive in this new world. And then we need to go build that world. So if that sounds like a like an interesting journey to, to go on with me, I'd like to invite you to uh, come back and check out my next episode. Next week, I'm gonna have my very first guest. I'm very excited for this. This is a very good friend of mine. Her name's Becca. She's a former skydiving instructor and she has had her own kind of personal experience with a, a pretty profound and cat catastrophic personal apocalypse. And so she's gonna come on next week. We're gonna talk about what that means in terms of her life and we're gonna tell some stories about how we know each other, we're gonna laugh, and it's gonna be a really fantastic conversation. So make sure that you tune in next week. Thanks for joining me for this episode. Hope it was uh, something interesting and helpful. I really believe, you guys, that we are in a, an important time in history, and we're in a in a very beautifully possible time in history. And I know that it's scary, I know that it's difficult, I know that everything feels strange and unfamiliar and catastrophic right now. But I promise you that we can survive this because I've survived this, right? I've survived many apocalypses in my life. I'm the apocalypse prophet. I know how it's gonna go down. It's gonna be gnarly for a couple more years, for probably 10, 15 more years. And then we're gonna be afforded a beautiful opportunity to rebuild this world. So let's make sure that we rebuild it in a beautiful way. That's it for today. Thanks for coming out, you guys. As always, follow me on, on TikTok, on Instagram. And then remember, check out my shows coming up on uh, January 26th and February 25th at the downtown Salt Lake City Wise Guys. And thanks for uh, vibing the apocalypse with me today.